You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is Tommy's Outdoors number 80. Nice round number, 80, only 20 till 100. And so today I have a special guest for you. Um, he doesn't really need introduction for most of you who are interested in the subjects we're discussing in this podcast. His name is Byron Pace. He's a host of the excellent Into the Wilderness podcast and also a new podcast, Into the Anthropocene podcast. Uh, and obviously, Byron is also a filmmaker, a photographer, and writer. A writer. Um, and I was really happy that he accepted the invitation to Tommy's Outdoors, and I really welcome the opportunity to talk with him. Um, so during the podcast, well, first we discuss how it came to be and how... What was Byron's uh, route and history to become uh, such a prominent content producer um, in the outdoor space? Uh, then we discussed about uh, a little bit about hunters and, and anglers and the importance of hunters and anglers for wildlife conservation, habitat conservation in general. Because uh, in Byron's podcast, pretty much like in my podcast, each time we talk about hunting and fishing, these subjects lead to discussion about wildlife and wildlife conservation. So I wanted to explore what is his take on um, the role of hunters and anglers in, in conservation. And uh, we also dived into the very popular these days subject of rewilding. Uh, so some interesting conversation regarding rewilding. Um, so that's it, really, uh, folks. Like I said, I don't think that Byron needs more introductions. Um, just a reminder that the video version of this podcast is available on Tommy's Outdoors YouTube channel. So if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you should head on to YouTube and look up Tommy's Outdoors YouTube channel and subscribe there. Uh, not only video version of the podcasts are published on this channel, on that channel, but also um, some other videos, vlogs and uh, more outdoors content that surely you will find interesting if you find this podcast interesting. And now, uh, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Byron Pace. Welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate that very much. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Well, it's it's it's, it's great. Uh, listen, you're you probably need no introduction uh, for for listeners of my podcast. You're a man of many talents. You are a filmmaker, photographer, podcaster, conservationist. But if you would have to pick one, as you identify yourself the most, what what would you say? You are a 
primary podcaster or filmmaker? No, that's a hard one. I think I do a, a lot of things, none of them particularly well. I think that's the, big, <laughs> that's the biggest uh, thing that runs through my mind so often is I, I very often feel a little stretched thin. But I don't know. I, I mean, recently, with this year, 2020, um, I haven't really... Okay, I was in America for kind of the start of lockdown, like coronavirus lockdown, but... I haven't done any big projects. I haven't had a camera in my hand until like two weeks ago mm -hmm. uh, because of everything that's been happening around the world. So 2020 is definitely the year of podcasting because uh -huh. that's primarily what I've been doing. But um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard to say. Probably the thing that I've been doing the longest is writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started writing for a hunting publication here in the UK when I was 19. Um, I wrote a story about uh, how to select the right knife for stalking, <laughs> um, which I didn't. I mean, 19 years, I didn't really know what I was talking about. I'd been told a lot of very insightful things by people who were a lot older than me and who knew a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I thought that for some bizarre reason, I thought other people might want to read what was in my mind. So I wrote this piece. And at the time, there was a magazine. Well, it's, it's still running, actually. The editor's a very good friend of mine. I'm called Sporting Rifle. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it had only been around for about a year. I don't even think it was a monthly publication. Mm -hmm. And so my, my idea, because at 19 years old, every time I walked into one of the news agents, I was picking up all of the hunting magazines off the shelves and uh -huh. scanning through them, deciding which one I was going to buy. And I was aware that this magazine was new. So in my mind, I thought, well, here's a new magazine. They probably don't have a lot of writers. So if I want to write, let's pick the new one rather than mm -hmm. the really established ones like like the field or field sports magazine yeah. which as i know now having been in the industry a long time i mean i can write in those magazines if i if i pitch a story to them and i know a lot of those editors but it is a little bit of a kind of it can be or historically has been a bit of a closed club but sporting rifle was kind of new and sexy and fresh and the editor at the time was um a guy called charlie jacoby who you probably mm -hmm. know of because he is the presenter of field sports channel the biggest the hunting channel on YouTube mm -hmm. and he was the editor. I don't actually know for how long Charlie was the editor of that, but and Charlie's a friend of mine now uh, at that time. I didn't know him and he saw this kid who wanted to publish a, a, a story on, uh, on knives and printed it for me. And I <laughs> thought this, I thought that this was awesome. But there yeah. I am. There was uh, for some weird reason he, he used, I, there was a picture of me holding a guy. I was posing on the balcony of the house, <laughs> and a picture of me with this gun. It was a seven fifty seven. Seiko L691, which they never made in 757. This is, this, I don't, are, your, are your listeners like primarily hunters, are they? Well, there, there's a whole spectrum. There's a, quite a few of the hunters as well. Okay, so, I, I, so you can geek out on, on I can guns geek out. and all that. I, yeah. don't, I, I don't really geek out on guns and stuff in my podcast. Um, but this particular rifle, which I don't own anymore, but a friend of mine owns. I sold it to a friend of mine. It was a 757, and they never made a 757 in that actual model. So this came like after the Finbear, after the Seiko Finbear, which is one of the best rifles Seiko ever made, arguably the best that they ever made. And uh, it, so it, it turned out that it was a, I bought it secondhand and it was a special order from the factory because it was Seiko stamped on the barrel. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I tell you that it's kind of irrelevant. There's a picture of me holding this gun and it was an entire A4 spread along with the story and, and the pictures of the knives. And I take them pictures of like the back of a, um, back of a deer's head with the, the, the knife blade going through the atlas joint uh -huh. you had to dispatch a deer and yeah. showing you basically if if a knife blade was too wide you couldn't 
slip it through the atlas joint and mm-hmm. if it was too thick it was difficult so i was trying to be a little technical uh, as well as just wanting to be published and then much to my amazement at, this, at that time they were owned by a company called blaze publishing and their account system was terrible uh-huh. and uh I didn't even, I didn't send an invoice. I didn't expect to be paid. I was just delighted to be published. It's like, bloody hell, I've been published in a magazine that like is on a shelf and people read it. And uh, six months later, I get a check in the post. Whoa. It's like, oh, hold on. Hold the phone. (laughs) Not only am I printed, I've also got paid for this. And this was like magic to me. I'm like, so if I'm 19 years old, I'm in my like second year of university at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was a very, very long-winded way to, to answer your question. I've been doing that the longest. So right. I'm a writer, but I guess really like my business that I set up with my brother. Uh, my brother's doing his own thing now. He's actually just joined the police. But um, the business that I set up with my brother four or five years ago was in film. And, and right. the film production mm-hmm. in the outdoor space Mm-hmm. is what allowed me to leave the other work in my life behind and just do this. But right. like you've alluded to, it was never just that. It was never just producing films. We yeah. were, from the very early stage, we were always uh, doing photography. We started the podcast fairly early on. I was always writing through all mm-hmm. of that as well. So it's always been a, a large spectrum of things for me. But really, I, I, th- I guess my real deep-seated passion mm-hmm. is in is in film mm-hmm. uh but not for the sake of film it's it's more about that medium for as a way of telling stories yeah yeah gotcha, filmmaker gotcha. and podcaster i guess <laughs> it, it I varies from you. i'm taking that it now vary you're a media personality but it varies from year to year you might be one year yeah more yeah filmmaker one way more of the podcaster listen so but you you started and, and you you work as a finance advice analyst, right? I did, yeah. And, yeah. That, and that, like, I don't know, you might disagree, but that sounds incredibly boring, at least compared <laughs> to what you to what you're doing right now. I so, don't disagree. <laughs> so, so one of the questions I always asking people, like, how it came to be, how, like, is this something that you always thought about doing something in outdoor space, and 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 you're you know, uh, were kind of persistently going that way or whether you never thought about this and then something happened that kind of turned you into that direction. And then what would be, what would you consider to be that turning point where you said like, all right, now that's my job now? Um, Okay, so the out being outdoors, hunting, fishing, being immersed in nature, being curious about how the natural world works has always been part of who I am. From a very young age, I was collecting skulls. I was digging rotting pits at the bottom of my parents' garden and finding dead stuff, either stuff that I had hunted or invariably actually just stuff that I'd found. And I was sticking it in these pits so I could uh, the bugs and beasties eat them down so I could collect their bones and skulls. And even to this day, I have it like in my house. It, it's filled with skulls like everywhere. Like I, I, I use it like art. Mm-hmm. And, and, and most of that is not even stuff that I've you know, had a, a part in, in, in uh, you know, taking. These are not animals that I've hunted. I have a little hedgehog. My favorite skulls is a little hedgehog. I mean, hedgehogs get run over on the road all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one had 
I, I found dead, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I cleaned up the skulls. I have this hedgehog skull. It's I must, amazing. I'm a, like you're inspired because I was like each time I see a badger, like a road killed badger, like something like wants well, me to. Well, badgers a badgers a slightly difficult one because they're a protected species. So I wouldn't yeah, you... the badger too much, but hedgehog, it was it was dead. So mm. I, I've always had this uh, desire to to know that world mm. around me more and sort of have my hands and, and be involved in it. And I, I learned to hunt and fish from a very young age because my dad um, taught us. And my, most of my um, sort of very young youth at sort of primary school, the summer holidays were filled with going down to the river, which is, I don't know, three-minute walk from where I'm sitting right now, the, the river that I kind of grew up on, uh-huh. uh, and fishing and just being left alone to do what I wanted with a fishing rod on the, on the river all summer. And I was very mm-hmm. content in doing it. I was fishing obsessed until, I mean, I, I still love it. I just don't have the time to do it as much as I'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was fishing obsessed up until the age of like 20. <laughs> mm-hmm. Me and uh, my cousin who now lives in New Zealand, who's a, who's a doctor now, we would just travel around eventually once because he's a couple of years older than me, so he could drive before me. But eventually once we had wheels, we would mm-hmm. drive around Scotland and go fishing. But the kind of breakover point for me was, well, to backtrack a second, I always loved that stuff. And the time when I was uh, in high school and then at the start of university, I was swimming a lot as well. I was a competitive swimmer and I got a scholarship mm-hmm. to go to university. That, so everything was paid for based on swimming. So a lot of the extra time that I might have had to even pursue these things more, I was actually in a swimming pool mm-hmm. or traveling to a swimming competition. And, you know, it was a, a very formative and important part of my life. Um, but in my mind, I had this idea that I, I had a very clear idea. In fact, you know, I left school a year early because I did quite well at school. So I was at university quite young on a scholarship and I was studying economics. Mm-hmm. hence the finance that you alluded to mm-hmm. and i was going to study economics i was going to become a fund manager i was going to go into the city i was going to make a shitload of money mm-hmm. and i was going to retire at 30 uh-huh. i'm 33 right now and i uh, i'm certainly not not i mean the way things have been for the last four or five months it kind of feels like retirement because i haven't <laughs> been doing very much apart from speaking to people on podcasts but um that was my grand plan and it, it faltered pretty early on when i started studying economics i was I was kind of, I was good at it, mm-hmm. but I was good at it just because um, of, I, I kind of put it down to the kind of competitive, competitive nature that I had from years of swimming. Is that no I didn't like, yeah. And I, I, I didn't like, I didn't like losing. So when I had to study, I studied. And so I was good. So, you know, I was passing all my exams, but after three years, I was just, you know, I couldn't do this anymore. I, I, I was struggling to find a desire in what I was learning. Mm-hmm. It's not like now I read loads of scientific papers all the time about you know, wildlife trade conservation, and, and I do that for fun, <laughs> not because I have to. Um, and so I actually took, uh, I ended up taking two years out. I very long story, but uh, a long story which I'm going to keep short is mm-hmm. I cut the grass for somebody as a summer holiday job just down the road from where my parents was. And it turned out that they were involved in a company that was designing tranquilizing darts, like a new design of tranquilizing darts for big game and mobilization. And they could uh, tranquilize animals at much further distances than any darts that were at the time. So I cut this guy's grass and he was also a hunter. And so we got on very well. And long story short, I ended up doing some bits and pieces for the company. And I, after three years, so I'd done my bachelor's, but not my honors year. 
I thought I can't do this anymore. I, I'm, I want to go and do this. So I postponed, I didn't drop out of university, but I postponed my, my final year. And I went and did some stuff for that company at the same time as I enrolled in a college course in gamekeeping conservation over in Fife, which was like a lot of all my friends who were gamekeepers and involved in uh, countryside management, they'd all gone through kind of similar courses. And I was doing it not because I thought I was going to become a gamekeeper. Um, I, I've never, I've thought about it. It's like life would be easier if I just did that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's for me. Um, but I wanted to do it because I wanted the knowledge and I, I had the time. So for two years, I postponed my last year of university and uh, I did that. And it, it took me to some amazing places and I spent a lot of time in Africa and uh, we darted elephants in Kruger Park for recoloring. We darted lots of rhinos for, um, you know, at the, this was like the early years of dehorning rhinos for anti-poaching and um, they darted lions on the border of Kruger Park. So it was I'd been going to Africa for years because my parents and family are all from the continent. Um, but this was the first real time. So like 2021 that I was really seeing the Africa that I had been going to for years because I'd kind of been going there as a tourist, even though I had family who lived there mm-hmm. here, I was living uh, the, 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 the sort of the depth of yeah. wildlife conservation that I was only reading about before. Yeah. And so um Anyway, I had to go and finish my degree. Otherwise, I would have not ended up with no degree. So after two years, I kind of left that to one side. Really found it difficult going back to university because two years out of the educational system, I'd forgotten how to write a paper. How have you done that? Oh, my God. It was horrendous. The first thing I handed in, my grade was terrible. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Because I was like, you know, I was like top of the year when I left. And now I was like... scraping the barrel <laughs> I went back but anyway I, I I got through I wrote my dissertation right at the start of the financial crisis uh-huh. of 2008 which uh-huh. is a brilliant time to be uh, have a degree in economics when everyone was losing their jobs um, you know Jeez. Goldman Sachs was shelling people Bear Stearns went bust uh, all of the you know Wall Street was underwater Mm-hmm. And I, the only jobs that were really going at that time were in risk analytics because nobody knew what the value of uh, mortgage-backed securities primarily were worth. And so I got a job with BlackRock, which is even to this day is the biggest investment company in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a you know, really good job. I was a, um, a risk analyst for a new team that they set up in Edinburgh. And like on paper, amazing. Mm-hmm. You graduate from university, honors degree in economics, working uh, in high five. It was everything that I, as a kid, kind of wanted. Like that was the route, ignoring the blip, the two years, and what clearly was my actual passion. Yeah. But in terms of this path that I had laid out in my head as a 16 year old, mm-hmm. this was it. It was, you know, get the job, biggest investment company in the world. I mean, that's it, right? I just got to do a good job. Like be really, really, really freaking good at what I do and the money will flow. And then when I'm retired at 30, I can buy my estate and I can go fishing and I can go mm-hmm. hunting and I can travel around the world. This is the, the thoughts of a naive 16-year-old. So, but I, so I did it and I did it for whatever it was, two years, three years, and uh, worked in Edinburgh and London and uh, set up an office in, in India for them. <clears throat> India was like the coolest thing about that was not the working, it was the travel. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I can, and I've told this story a couple of times before, uh, but um, to exactly what your question was, uh, the, the point, the breaking point for me 
was um, <clears throat> I was sitting in in my office in Edinburgh, and we'd had one of the the big managers from New York over. He'd been there for a week with the team, and at this point, I'd you know, being promoted. I'd actually, funny enough, I'd actually tried to leave a year before because I knew I hated that job from the first week I started it. <laughs> I never liked it for one, one moment. And um, a year before I thought, no, sod this, I can't do this anymore. And I kind of tried to leave and they, they didn't, obviously I must've been half decent at the job because they didn't want me to go. I said, well, you know, what other things would you like to do within the company? So I was given a different role, mm-hmm. uh, which actually just meant going down to London more, which I hated. Mm-hmm. And, um, but anyway, then eventually I decided, so that this big boss had been there for a week and I realized that uh, if I was really good at my job, I would have his job one day. Like he was the person I could be if I was good. Uh-huh. And after nothing against him, but this was more, there's nothing against him like personally, but more a reflection on his life yeah. and what it looked like. I didn't want to be him. I thought uh-huh. that, it, that looks like hell to me. Uh-huh. And so I literally, my computer, I wrote my resignation letter and I printed it out on the printer and I put it on my manager's desk. And uh, I said, look, I, I don't want to leave you guys stuck because I like, I had friends in my team. Yeah. So tell me how long you need me for and then I'm gone. So I worked for two months and then I got on a flight to Africa and then went there for four months. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. So that was kind of the breakover point. There was a little bit of stuff after that. So I was, <clears throat> I didn't really have a plan. Mm-hmm. Field Sports Channel had just started. Um, so, or not long, no, sorry. Yeah, no, they, they had started already. So Charlie said I could do some filming for them. So I was like, okay, I make a bit of money there. Mm-hmm. I was writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, so I could make a little bit of money there. I could maybe do some more filming, like YouTube channels are kind of just mm-hmm. blowing up. Maybe I could mm-hmm. start a YouTube channel. I didn't really have a plan. I just knew mm-hmm. that I was able to leave, and so I had to leave. Yeah. Um, so I was going to pursue some sort of journalism. So I did that for some time, and it kind of worked, but I, it was really difficult. Like it, it, In the UK, mm-hmm. it is al- unless you're an editor of a magazine, it is mm-hmm. almost impossible to make a living as a writer in field sports. Mm-hmm. they just don't pay enough mm-hmm. in america that's different because they pay properly yeah. uh, but most publications here do not pay enough mm-hmm. um so if you want to just do that it's going to be very very difficult like i say unless you do some sort of editorial role as well yeah um so i i couldn't quite find the right groove to be able to do things like that most people want to do like maybe buy a house one day <laughs> um and so i ended up uh, sort of slipping back into the mindset and I, I found something which I thought would be more entertaining for me, but a, like a normal job. Mm-hmm. And I went back and started studying an MSc in petroleum engineering, actually. Huh. I worked in, in oil as a drilling fluids. I went to drilling fluid school and <clears throat> I was a drilling fluids engineer for, um, uh, for Slumberger, a, a big service company for a couple of years. And for me, that job was interesting it was technically interesting there was a lot of responsibility and i actually did genuinely enjoy like the work that was mm-hmm. was really interesting work and i was an important person on the rig like i had to do my job well or you know, potentially people could die mm-hmm. and i kind of i, I like that challenge um but also i got six months off a year because i worked ah. three weeks on i worked three weeks off so i thought well here's a perfect compromise an industry that uh pays pretty well or it did and uh, I get six months to do all the other things that I want to do. Mm. But then oil crisis happened. And I realized that this was like, you know, I'm working in an industry which is actually like, you know, killing the planet, uh, <laughs> which has always sat a little bit weird for me. But mm-hmm. I live near Aberdeen, which 
basically the only work in, in this part of the world yeah. is, is in oil, unless you go down to Edinburgh and finance, where I worked before. Um, and so I started, uh, my brother had just come back from Australia. Uh, he had been in the Navy commercial uh, as a diver, and then he was working as a commercial diver. And he came back to the UK, uh, UK <clears throat> back to Scotland, and was kind of struggling to find work as well, because like me, I, we were as a diver, he would have been working in the oil industry and the oil industry was crashing. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was doing kind of just, you know, shitty work that wasn't particularly interesting. And I just suggested to him, say, you know, I'm thinking that I need to try and do something that I'm really passionate about. Why don't we have this crazy idea just like cooked up after watching a Donnie Vincent film? Why don't we start a film production company? Because <laughs> no one's making stuff like this. You know, mm -hmm. like Charlie was there mm -hmm. making a weekly show, but it wasn't cinema production, which yes. is ambition that we had. Mm -hmm. And so we started really small. I did the first year of the company. I still worked offshore. I worked offshore for three weeks. I came home and I worked in our company for three weeks. My brother was working full time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started to pick up little bits of work. And then after a year, I was able to just like, you know, it was tough. We weren't making really any money. Um, but I was able to leave and then we started the podcast and then I was still writing and then we started the shop and yeah, blah, blah, blah. Then it kind of yeah. rolled on from there. And then eventually we didn't have to really look for work because we had enough sort of portfolio of work out there that mm -hmm. companies like big companies would come to us and say, we'd like to, you to make this for us. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, then I started to pursue some more documentary type Fantastic. stuff. Fantastic. That's uh, that's me talking for a long time to tell you a bit of backstory. No, but that, that's 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 fascinating because this is this is uh, I think important. You know how people who are doing all sorts of cool stuff that, that I'm talking with on the podcast. You know how they get to that, and 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 your story is quite quite remarkable in a sense. Like you really have this negative stimuli to like, oh, I'm sick of this job. And that, and I guess the moral is that sometimes you need to listen to that internal voice and like, why yeah. are you doing this? Listen to it. And I, find, I found this increasingly in life is that if you want a great motivator to go and do something, put yourself in a really uncomfortable position. Uh -huh. And when I was in the city, you know, working between London and Edinburgh, I hated every minute of it. And I needed that in a way to realize what I didn't have. Yeah. And without being incredibly uncomfortable and like pretty depressed, like at the end of the week, on a Friday, mm -hmm. I would get in my car and drive back where I'm sitting right now pretty much because all the things I enjoyed doing were here. And I, yeah. I somewhat regret that now because I never, like Edinburgh is actually a beautiful city and there's a lot of cool stuff to do there. And I appreciate Edinburgh far more now than when I lived there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes you have to remove yourself to appreciate the, the situation that you're in. Gotcha. But being in that incredibly uncomfortable and very, for me, very depressing situation and kind of hating every day of my life was what <laughs> was what really forced me to create a new path. And yeah. sometimes that's required. So yeah. I think yeah. you know, if you've, no doubt. but listen to passion. I just, as I said to you just before we started recording, I, I was. Um, I just interviewed Nick Baker, who's a very well-known um, TV presenter here in the UK, like an, 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 a naturalist, an incredibly nice guy. And uh, we talked at length about you know, pursuing passion because yeah. if you're passionate about a subject, and, and this is the advice I would give to the 16-year-old version of me if I could, uh, mm -hmm. would be that forget about this idea of doing a job that creates enough money to be able to do the things that you truly want to do. 
Because yes. if you are if you are deeply passionate about something and you pursue that as an avenue, then you will be really good at it because mm-hmm. you have passion that of on a subject, you know, whatever it may be, whether it be forestry or or hunting or you know, I don't, collecting tra- model train sets. It doesn't yeah. really matter. If you are deeply passionate about it, you will become a- an expert. Yeah. And people will see it and then you'll end up talking about it. You'll end up doing podcasts about it. You'll create films about it. You'll write about it and you will find an avenue that allows yeah. you to, to make that a career. And, 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 and don't be afraid to do that. And the other thing is like you, you spend your, your, your best, most productive time of your life doing something that you hate so then you can do something that you love when you when you're old and uh, old and buggered and you can't like get up the mountain anymore. and this hey. is like I, even now I'm thinking I'm doing a lot of cool stuff now I I don't know if I'll be able to do what I'm doing now in 30 years time like mm-hmm. physically whether I'll be able to do it in 30 years yeah. time and I think back to um, all the, the opportunities to do cool things mm-hmm. that I had to turn down when I worked in finance because. Yeah. You know, it's a normal job to go and do something cool. One, it's difficult to do it short notice, which a lot of cool things come up at short notice. Uh, but secondly, you have to book holiday time and you only get so much holiday time. Yes. And uh, to be, have to turn, uh, there's a th- and some of those are things that I will never be able to do in old age. And I'm, I'm very much more of the mind these days that you have to live far more in the moment than worry about the future to to an extent you have to be sensible about how you structure your life so that tomorrow you don't have enough money to feed yourself like that's not smart mm-hmm. yeah. but to you know to a point living more in the moment is something which i think we could all do a lot better yeah yeah listen uh i want to switch gears a little bit now sure. and and uh talk about uh your your podcast obviously is is kind of hunting fishing, hunting, outdoors, pursuit. Um, I don't know, like where I'm heading with this is like, when I started my podcast, I was, I was also thinking like, oh, it's going to be about hunting and fishing and all these things. And inevitably, it kind of goes into the direction of conservation and wildlife and taking care of the environment and all that. And I kind of see same thing like when i started to listen to your podcast you know it's like oh great it's about hunting and it's you know you hunting deer in scotland and all this and then i kind of spotted the similar pattern that that these this is more like a almost environmental podcast or conservation yeah than hunting and fishing is is um i don't know like it, it's it's natural progression or how do you how do you see that um, yeah, I guess when, when we started it, the intention was, it was, we, we did, we started and kind of pitched it as a, a, um, a hunting, fishing and conservation podcast. So it was kind of always on our mind. I am very aware, and it has been pointed out to me, um, that we focus a lot more, as, as I say, we, now, you know, now it's just me, but, um, we, we started to focus a lot more on the conservation side of it and bring people who weren't necessarily what you would consider like inside the, the fishing and hunting world. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes not even quite sharing the same views yeah. or values that you might expect. But for me, so many of the things that we kind of strive for, whatever you know, community or tribe you think you feel a part of, you know, whether that mm-hmm. be the hillwalking brigade or, yeah. and I know that saying that in any kind of disparaging manner, or you know, the, the guys mm-hmm. who like 
kayaking, anybody who enjoys the great outdoor, you know, whatever your tribe is, we kind of all want the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of commonalities, but we don't often have a conversation about it. And I realized that, you know, one thing that I was definitely not going to do on the podcast was make it uh, sort of a technical hunting stuff where we were going to, I mean, I, I say that and at the start of yours, I was talking sort of geeking out on a particular gun for one moment, because <laughs> I, but you know, I never really talk about that stuff anymore. I, I, I was a gun reviewer for a decade. Mm. You know, I reviewed almost every gun that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, rifle wise, certainly I had really no interest in shotguns and I did it because it was a job. You know, it was a thing I did every month for a magazine. And uh, when I was younger, it was like, it was amazing to have this freedom to have guns sent to me all the time that I could play with mm-hmm. and ammunition as much as I wanted to go and shoot. And this was a lot of fun. But I realized as I got a little bit older, like cause towards my late 20s, that really that wasn't important. Like, you know, who gives a shit? Mm-hmm. And I... Some people still need to give a shit and there's lots of YouTube channels out there and, pe- and lots of people out there who write mm-hmm. about like the kind of stuff that I, in fact, I did YouTube videos on it as well for um, mm-hmm. uh, the shooting show who do that stuff and loads of people watch it. Mm-hmm. But I, I realized that that is not going to make a difference really to anything other than the sale of more guns. You know, what is really, really important to me is, is not that. It is about the landscape that I, I, I walk across with a gun over my shoulder very often yeah. or a fishing rod in my hand or more recently, more commonly, a camera in my hand. Mm-hmm. And those, just take those three activities. What are the, what's the thing that those three activities have in common? It's yeah, not yeah. the gun. It's not the camera. It's, it's not the fishing rod. It is the land that my feet are standing on. Yeah. And I found that, you know, whereas... 19 year old me could dive into a book on guns and read everything on the internet about a particular model and you know want to understand the intricate workings of it and and the history and i was fascinated by that and my library in my office reflects that because i have shelves on of books on the topic i was becoming much less interested in that and uh, you know, I used to be absolutely fascinated with ballistics and mm-hmm. I still am to some extent uh, really intrigued by terminal ballistics, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the internal workings of how a, a bullet functions inside the medium of whatever it is that you're hunting. So mm-hmm. normally when we're hunting, it's this is live quarry mm-hmm. uh, because I think that that's really important from a, an animal welfare standpoint. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed digging into that. It's very scientific. But the, what it really boiled down to was that my real desire to to be out there was um, a, a function of understanding the wildlife yeah. and understanding the ecosystem that I was in far more than it was about what I was doing there. But that said, I think that I would have never had the, the interest uh, or the patience to truly understand the, com- the complexities of interactions in the natural world if, it ha- if I hadn't been hunting and if I hadn't been fishing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, is, that, that is what opened the doorway for me. Yeah, no doubt. No. Uh, so yeah, we've moved in that direction, absolutely. And I have a lot of people on now who, you know, we don't even really, we don't, hunting comes up, but the podcast I just did today, it didn't even come up at all. It was all about the yeah. natural world. It's amazing. It was one of the best interviews I've done for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I interviewed Dr. Amy Dickman from um, 
mm-hmm. Oxford University. And I did talk about hunting a lot in that, not because she's a hunter. I, I remember that one. I remember that one because then there was like an entire, entire uh, big multi-day or multi-week conversations on various social media with, with Amy being involved a lot uh, around the trophy hunting and all that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Remember, I remember that, that episode. And, and those are the kind of people that I, that I seek out. And those are the kind of people that I... I enjoy speaking with, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and, and that is not to say. So, don't get me wrong here. That is not to say that there aren't that I don't enjoy speaking to. You know, so many of my friends are, are stalkers and gamekeepers, and and the modern stalker and gamekeeper, like today, has a an increasing uh, an increasing desire to really understand the world around them. A little bit like I, I think we missed a bit in the middle. I think that they're like mm-hmm. today's young keepers realize that that's really important. And likewise, those guys, uh, it was mainly guys back then because there, there wasn't really, women were not really involved in this as, as an industry, more so now. We could still do much better at you know, you know, being more inclusive with that. Um, but back in like 1900, a lot of those people who were hunting back then, a lot of those people who were fishing were also naturalists. Some of the things they did were absolutely freaking horrible. I mean, there was you know mass poisoning of raptors even back you know nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, and that's not a we don't talk about it very much because we think of it as a Victorian era thing, mm-hmm. but it was happening back then, which is not that long ago. Yeah, um, and that is well now it's completely illegal, obviously, and I think there's an understanding of this of uh, a better tolerance with allowing nature to be nature mm-hmm. and also make a living off the land as people. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm trying to work out where, where on earth I was going with that, but, uh, <laughs> no, no. I mean, like we were, we were talking that, you know, uh, we, we kind of both started with hunting and fishing oh, and, and that, yeah, that's that right. Inevitably... Yeah. So, yeah. I was saying that I, that, and I, what I wanted to make clear was that I'm not saying that I don't, I find it interesting speaking to gamekeepers and stalkers now because there, mm-hmm. there is some incredible, um, you know, depth of knowledge and, and, and the old books written by like, you know, Ronnie Rose, uh, Ronnie Rose, the little title of his book, I had it in my hand last night. Um, his, his family is a very f- famous uh, family of gamekeepers up here in Scotland. Uh, Working with Nature is the name mm-hmm. of his book. Brilliant book. And you realize that like, he was a naturalist. Yeah. And I think we are moving much more towards that. I think there was a period in time where we'd moved away from that. And I think we're moving back towards that. There are people who pursue countryside sports are realizing that they, you're really what it is, is about being a naturalist and, yeah. and utilizing wild resources in a sustainable manner. And they, you know, that's something that I'm a massive advocate for. And I think needs to be better understood by the public. And, um, and this is, you see, and here's a, here's a, another thing. Obviously you and I, we, we agree completely on the fact where, you know, in general, you know, hunters and anglers are, are naturalists or, or they should be and they should care about the conservation and, and so on. But uh, obviously there is a huge division and huge divide between, you know, people who are, let's quote, animal lovers, right? And like you said, we all want the same thing. But we have these people who are hiking and they're, they're love animal and they think that, you know, every hunter is a, like a bloodthirsty, whatever uh, uh, you, you want to call them. And then you have these, these, these hunters here. And sad thing is that, as you say, we want, ultimately we want the same thing. And we might have a different opinion about, you know, how to, 
you know, use those animals or how to interact with them. But first, we need to have them there. We need to have that environment to even, you know, start that discussion. And because you're coming from this hunting and angling background, do you feel like sometimes you kind of preaching to the choir that your audience are people who are already hunters and anglers and they know all that and people who might benefit from having this little bit of okay, open mind conversation are not the ones you're going to reach because you are perceived as this, you know, hunting oriented uh, person or, or, or media. I give you another example. We have in Ireland here uh, in one of the national parks organized, it's called rat walk. So each time the red deer is rotting, there's this, this rat walk and the people are coming and the, uh, gamekeepers or rangers are talking, you know, how you need to call those, those deer and how you need to, you know, make a population and about the uh, carrying capacity of the land, all these good stuff. And, you know, everybody's there is, you know, agree they're all doing great job. But my thing is like, but you're preaching to the choir. Like people who should hear this, they're not here. They're over there protesting deer call or something like that. So, do you have this, uh, you know, perception that the real audience who you and I should, should come to and, 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 and target are not the ones who, are, who are, will be even willing to listen to what we're saying? And how to, how to fix that? It's an interesting question and an important one. Um, I mean, yes, there is a little bit. I think it goes two ways, though, uh, because, so yeah, there's a, there's a couple of elements to this. Um, as a hunting community, if you if we're using that as a kind of umbrella term, yeah, we also need to listen to other people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it doesn't just go one way. We are all, we always have these discussions like, oh, they need to listen to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. How often do you spend listening to them? And we don't because I think sadly we're quite arrogant in our knowledge, um, and uh, we actually there are a lot of things we don't understand because we don't take the time to. Uh, even if you don't agree with someone, try and understand why they think like that. Mm -hmm. And you will learn a lot. And mm -hmm. we don't do that enough either. Reflective listening. Right? A lot of, exactly. Reflective listening. Um, I was always very conscious of that in that I was never really making podcasts for hunters. Mm -hmm. I knew that hunters and people who fish and do consumptive use of the, of the countryside would be able to take something from it and hopefully enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But I always wanted to make a podcast and particularly like the writing that I've done in the last couple of years was always intended for people who were not hunters to consume it. Mm -hmm. Now, getting it in front of them is difficult. So one of the ways that we've done it on the podcast is that I have people who are not from this realm. Mm -hmm. They are not traditional. So like Amy, Amy Dickman's a, a little bit of a strange one because, I mean, she's a hardcore incredibly well-educated and articulate and respected scientist. Yeah. Um, but she does have this, you know, she supports uh, regulated trophy hunting and we've, I've talked at great lengths about her. Yeah. So some would regard her as like, sadly, as kind of like tainted by the hunting community. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, not, she's not tainted by the hunting community, but 
her 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 views are tainted by the fact that she supports yeah. that. And you which, received which zero point five percent funding from exactly. Like, so, like, oh. And I I mean I I it's it's a shame that that's the case. But she is I mean in the science community she's a massively respected uh, mm. voice. But you have someone like her on, or you have someone like Nick Baker on, who I just had, or or Sean Conway, who's just an adventurer and an explorer. And you know I I could go down down the list of names who are people who are fascinated about the natural world, but don't necessarily, um, uh, Levison Wood, fascinated by the natural world, are amazing photographers, make incredible documentaries that help us understand the planet better, but don't have any kind of ax to grind to say that hunting is good or bad or indifferent or fishing or you know, any mm -hmm. of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And those kind of people have amazing stories and amazing insight into the natural world and, and, this, and, and the social interactions as well, which are very important. And they appeal to a, a much broader audience. So I have conversations with those people partly because it's fascinating for me. I love speaking to these people, mm. but also because I'm aware of the fact that if I'm having these conversations, it'll pull people who are interested in what they have to say. And, and then maybe they'll go and listen to one that is slightly more angled towards, you know, let's understand the management of red deer mm. you know, uh, in more detail, like I did with um, Dr. Lindsay Seafright, who's a friend of mine who lives up mm. north. And we did this very in-depth podcast, a little bit about her, but a lot to do with deer management and, uh, and the hunting of deer. And maybe somebody who goes and listens to Nick We'll now go and listen to a deer management podcast. So it's creating the avenues and reasons for people to consume that content, but also make it in, you know, make it accessible for people. That is why I don't down and, and talk about the guns that are in my cabinet or technical stuff about, mm -hmm. you know, tapering leaders for fly fishing and my fly selection and, you know, I, but I do podcasts on Atlantic salmon and the conservation of Atlantic salmon and the work that is being done in tracking um, mm -hmm. projects or uh, repopulating like the River Gary in Scotland. And I'm, I'm speaking to the fisheries biologists. Mm -hmm. All of that is tied to my passion to fish. Yeah. I'm not talking about the technical aspects of it mm -hmm. because really that's what's important. That is what is important going forward if we want to protect this stuff. And so I think that that is, um, there is very little barrier of entry for people when you present it in, in that manner. And it still allows you to have conversations around fishing and conversations around hunting, but not in a confrontational manner. And yeah. likewise with uh, the writing that, I, that I'm, I've been doing and, and as international editor of Modern Huntsman, that has Huntsman in the title, but that publication is one that, the intention has always been that it could be picked up by anybody. Mm -hmm. And it was always intended that it was going to bring new people into the community. And we know yeah. that it's done that because we get the feedback. I know that people who don't hunt and don't yeah. fish, but just enjoy the world, listen to the podcast because they email me yeah. and, you know, they find these uh, conversations insightful. I, I think the thing is that that requires an open mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's most people. You know, most people have an open mind, but the loudest people are not those people. Uh -huh. So the loudest people are those people who have, tend to have a very polar opinion on a subject. And that goes on both sides. Mm -hmm. So if we're just talking about hunting, mm -hmm. the loudest people will be the animal rights, not uh, the animal rights, anti-hunters, ban trophy hunting, that mm -hmm. bloody page that's yeah. 
run by people who don't know anything about anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you, and I, and I can say that with confidence because go and look at the history of the people who are involved in that and look at their back. Mm-hmm. They're experts on nothing apart mm-hmm. from raising money. That's what they're experts in. Mm-hmm. But the same is also true at the other end of the pro hunting in whatever form that may be. You know, we mm-hmm. also have some complete idiots within our community <laughs> who do an incredibly poor dro- job of portraying what a hunter is today. Yeah. And you, you know, we could do without those people mm-hmm. uh, or they, they need re-educating. And just to reinforce what I said when, we, when you first asked me that question is that we need to involve ourselves uh, in other discussions as well. Yeah. And that's why it's really healthy for us to go to community events where things are being discussed that are might seem on the periphery of our of our interest. But it's going. To, but if it's involved in the environment and if it's involved in wildlife, don't not go to a public event about Capricaylee because the RSPB are running it. Yeah, you have, a, you have beef with the RSPB because they haven't been particularly friendly to, to shooting since forever. Um, that's. How, how do you expect any dialogue to happen if you can't be the bigger person and sit in the room? If you don't have a seat around the table, you will not be part of the discussion. Yeah. And being open-minded enough, whether you're a, a hunter within the, the outdoors community or you're someone who's just in the kind of recreational outdoors, walking and kayaking community, mm-hmm. being open-minded enough to have a discussion with someone and understand, try and understand why they're coming from the direction that they're coming from mm-hmm. is really the starting point. And if we could all do that more often, I think that to reinforce what we just said 20 minutes ago, mm-hmm. we would find the commonalities. Absolutely. We might not always agree on the methods and you know, that's something that we, we can tweak, but you know, being so angry all the time and so aggressive and so confrontational about our own opinions, I don't think helps anybody. No, no, not at all. And, and listen, that, that, that kind of gives a nice segue into uh, another thing that I would like to talk to you about. And that ties into seat at the table. And I want to know your thoughts about, uh, I guess, movement. Uh, that's the word that should be used of rewilding and rewilding. Like I feel for a number of years now that hunters are kind of on the on the wrong side of rewilding of the rewilding argument right if there is such a thing um that if if like usually traditionally and and you know correct me if i'm wrong but what i feel like hunters usually tend to side with farmers who don't want wolves they don't want you know other creatures running around which i by the way i understand the point of view uh being involved this year into you know all the bureaucracy that farmers have to go through to get the payment for the birds habitat and so so all that i understand that but my point is like if if hunting organizations are not talking about the rewilding and i'm not like ultimately every hunter wants to do to, to have a, a lot of creatures running around right we this healthy habitat and then if this is gonna happen eventually and i'm i'm optimist and i think that it will happen um you know in terms of rewilding and reintroduction of various species then hunting community will be locked out of that as these, you know, oh, you only, oh, you only want to shoot things, right? Get out of here. And, and, and I don't see, I haven't really noticed any hunting organizations or, or pro hunting, you know, people 
uh, a, a, you know, representing organization talking in a positive manner about rewilding. Rewilding is kind of like a domain of, again, you know, animal loving, fluffy thing people who are just one, you know, what's, what's your views on, on, on the rewilding as a whole and then involvement of, of hunters and anglers in, in that? Um, it's an interesting and very complicated one. And I don't know enough as I wish I did on it. Uh, but I think that if we take like rewilding in Scotland, the first um, or the biggest push for rewilding is the growth of trees. Mm-hmm. So you could say that, oh, well, and, and you're, you're right to some extent that it is seen certainly that uh, those within the rewilding camp are uh, more inclined to be along the sort of animal rights type mm-hmm. movements. But to grow trees, you have to kill a shitload of deer. Mm-hmm. So you, well, that's what we're told, and that's the that's what was basically in the um, working uh, deer working group report that came out at the start of this year, and um, well, actually the end of last year, and we've seen the the, the press releases and the, the headlines and the papers at the start of this year. Scotland needs to cull twice as many, I think, twice as many deer as it does if we're if we're going to reach our our tree growth targets set by the mm. Scottish government. So on the one hand, you could say that. Yeah, it, it tends to be uh, consumed by people involved in animal rights. But if they are really into the rewilding, which is, like I say, mainly focused on trees here, yeah, we can talk about charismatic megafauna. Um, then you also have to be comfortable with the idea that that seems to go hand in hand with massive reductions in our deer population. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't sit very comfortably with a lot of landowners who have deer. Because traditionally, uh, especially estates that don't have uh, you know, great value in grouse, the, the value of those vast swaths of land are in the deer that are there because that's the, the economic value. Uh, okay, there'll be some agricultural value as well because of, with sheep grazing. Mm-hmm. But they obviously don't want to see massive reductions in deer if they're living within... Um, within the confines of habitat impact, which they should all be doing these days because Mm -hmm. we have a system now of habitat impact assessments to understand about population densities and how they're affecting the environment that they live in. And it's within, it's in everybody's interest uh, that we are managing populations within the means of the habitat that they exist upon. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you were to uh, you know, look at that report, it's suggesting that you know, all dense density across all of Scotland should be below 10 deer per square kilometer for effective tree growth. Uh, the problem being right now is that we're already at that. Uh-huh. Um, so on average, if you average it out, apparently we're already at that. And it is also pretty naive to the fact that different environments and microclimates will be able to support more or less deer. I mean, 10 could be way too many in some places, yeah. but maybe other places could support twice as amount, uh, mm-hmm. twice the amount of that. Um, so yeah, the rewilding debate is complicated and I, and I think it's frustratingly confused by the fact that it is focused normally on these uh, it's normally focused on individual species yeah because that is what you can rile yeah. up 
public yeah. interest and support. And yeah. so introduce Lynx, wolves, introduce links, introduce beavers, yeah. introduce whatever. So Lynx was one that has been bubbling along in, in Scotland, all over the UK, but particularly in Scotland uh, for years now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that to talk about that example specifically very briefly, I think the biggest issue with that is that the Lynx Trust, mm-hmm. which are the main driving force behind that introduction, is run by people who, and I've interviewed um, uh, O'Donoghue is his surname. I can't remember his surname. Doctor, I think it was Paul O'Donoghue. Um, I interviewed him at length on the podcast. And, you know, it's very clear here he doesn't really care about the people at all. Hmm. He doesn't really care about the landscape. It, it becomes pretty obvious that it's more about uh, his own desire to do something at the expense of everyone. Mm-hmm. And to get, I like links. I love. I, like, I want plenty and, of links around. And to get funding to be able to do this stuff, you know, and they've been involved in some pretty dodgy stuff with wild cats and releasing feral cats that they've caught <laughs> back into the wild. Um, you know, th- that is all part of the same company, uh, Wildcat mm-hmm. Haven. I, I think. Hope I'm getting right, but it's all yeah, part yeah, of I, the same I, company. I, and uh, you're know, completely going against the uh, the advice by Scottish Natural Heritage which is now called Nature Scott, but back then it was um, Scottish Natural Heritage. So um, you have people like him involved in trying to introduce links. And I think it leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because it's very confrontational. It's like being forced upon people. Mm. And, it's, and it's also silly because why, why are we focusing on the reintroduction of links right now when we haven't got our habitat right? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have... A, a connected uh, habitat across uh, Scotland that could effectively uh, home them in a way that they're not going to come into uh, confrontation and conflict with humans um, all the time. And I also think it, it pulls having conversations like that, I think is a massive waste of resources mm-hmm. because well, all this time that could have been spent talking about all the time that has been spent talking about links and all the money that has been spent in mm-hmm. doing these tests for reintroductions. Just think about all the other species that would have been far less controversial, which would have been small stepping blocks towards one day, hopefully this amazing ambition of reintroducing links. Mm-hmm. I am not sure if wolves will ever see wolves roaming. Um, Scotland. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I don't think we'll get there. It would be cool if we did. Mm-hmm. I don't think so, but what an amazing ambition to see links here again. But it's like they're jumping to the final stage. It's like, let's get to level 10 before we've done levels one through to nine. And on top of that, we have a lot of native species, which we've never lost, Mm -hmm. which we are busy losing right now as we speak. And in that particular example, introducing a a lynx isn't going to help us. Uh, I mean, you could, the argument there, of course, is that, Oh, well, because we've just been talking about deer. Let's introduce lynx and it'll help us control the deer population. Okay, well, maybe. Um, I think we'll end up with a lot of conflict with sheep farmers as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll probably also, it'll be the wrong component of the deer population. Because lynx are forest dwelling or on the peripheries of forests. That's what they like because they need cover because they're an ambush predator. So... How are the, explain to me how the lynx are going to control the red deer population, apart from the relatively small component of the red deer population in Scotland, which are in woodland. Yeah. But what they're going to do is absolutely hammer the roe deer. And I remember mm. I, these numbers have stuck with me at the time. They reckoned that the population of, and I can't remember how many hundred lynx it was that we, they reckoned we could support, 
would would kill 30,000 deer a year. And most of those 30,000, because of what we've just said, would be roe deer. Yeah. We only kill that many roe deer a year here. Mm-hmm. And the roe deer populations, unlike most of the focus in terms of management and the discussions about having too many deer, is mostly focused on red deer. There's a little bit of roe deer issues and Forestry Commission, which is now not called that either, uh, Forest and Land Scotland, I think it is, um, you know, they shoot a lot of roe deer because of their damage on trees. Um, but then there would be, we would have no harvest of roe deer carcasses. What about all of that hunting that takes place with roe deer? So all of that economic value would be gone. Yeah. We can't just say that that, we have to consider this. And that's yeah. not me saying that we would never have a landscape where we could have lynx roaming again. Mm-hmm. I just think that we're so far away from that right now yeah. that there are other things that we could focus on. And because of this reason, and because it is the extremes that are always focused on, wolves, bears, and lynx, uh, rather than, you know, let's talk, about, let's talk about protecting flora. And maybe that does mean, maybe that does mean include the discussion about reducing deer densities in some, uh, some areas and regrowth of, of forests and actually establishing that stuff first. And I think that's why we have this very uh, conflicting, conflicting discussion mm-hmm. between like the hunting community and the, um, the rewilding. Mm-hmm. I think we have so much in common really yeah uh, with the rewilding community i mean wouldn't it be amazing to have you know more sort of broken deciduous woodland that we could hunt across mm-hmm. and i think this is one of the things that the rewilding um i don't I, no, I don't even know what term to use because uh, i don't mean this in any kind of insulting way like the rewilding crowd uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling yeah. with the same things like, as you're like how, how, not, to, how to call them yeah, I'm not being disparaging by that yeah. so I'm going to call them the rewilding crowd I, I say it with love yeah. um, I think one of the issues that they have is that there is a certain component of, there's a, there is a very pragmatic sensible very science driven component to the rewilding um, community do not get me wrong but uh, they're some of their loudest advocates as with most walks of life have this notion that we can just leave it be. You know, we leave these areas be and they will eventually take care of themselves. Well, we've already proven that that's bullshit because to do what, um, you know, a lot of things that they want to achieve, we've got to go and kill shitloads of deer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's already us not just leaving it be. And then we need to think about, well, reintroducing these deer at some point. They need to accept that we can we can create systems that will move in a direction that they want. And it's a direction that I want greater biodiversity, more wildlife, more access for people to experience truly wild places. There are barely any truly wild places left on this planet anymore, but places Mm -hmm. that at least feel wild, but we need to define what, what do we even mean by that? Mm -hmm. Um, But to do that, they need to accept that that is going to involve these Mm-hmm. our hands as yeah. man yeah because we truly have shaped this landscape and it's not even like you know we've we talk about oh you know man is mankind has uh humans man and womankind has shaped this landscape around us like it's something that's happened you know in the last hundred years the caledonian pine forest started to be felled by the vikings yeah and then during the Highland clearances, they were burning forests 
because they wanted to put sheep on the hills. You're, you're going back hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. You know, back here, like seven, I think Ireland, you guys lost the wolf in the 1770s, I think. Mm-hmm. In England, it was way before that. I think it was a couple of hundred years before that. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the landscape that we see today, which don't forget, and I, I can talk about this at, at home where I live in Scotland. People from all over the world come to see the beautiful landscape that exists today mm-hmm. because it is what it is right now. And that doesn't mean that it can't be better. But sometimes I think we forget that we have a lot and there are certain things that we don't want to lose. You know, I don't want to see all of Scotland covered with trees, which is sometimes what I, I think the, re, the, the rewilding crowd suffer with is that they don't even explain their position particularly clearly. Yeah. Because we have a lot of habitats here that we absolutely do not want to see trees on because they are fragile, protected habitats that are globally significant for flora mm-hmm. and fauna. Mm-hmm. And we actually need grazing pressure from deer to stop afforestation on these areas. Mm-hmm. Because those deer which were pushed out of these vast woodlands onto this really quite crappy habitat in the uplands have been the architects of that landscape now for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so we need to try and decide exactly you know, what it is that we want. And I think that quite often we kind of want the same things. Yeah. But one thing that I can absolutely guarantee is that it will require our management and our input on our input to kind of mold it in a way. We live on a tiny, we live in a tiny country here. Look at it on a map. And if yeah. you go and look at it on a globe, it's way <laughs> bigger than it, than it, it's, it's way bigger in terms of how it's represented than it truly is in the world because it's always scaled up. Otherwise we wouldn't really see it. Yeah. And we have 66 million people. Yes. In the UK. So to suggest that we should, we, we shouldn't, also have a very clear idea of how management of these areas will evolve. And that is going to include um, either culling deer populations or leaving deer populations or moving or culling beaver populations. God forbid I suggest that. (laughs) Um, That is the reality of the situation because this is a landscape that we also live in. Yeah. We need food off the landscape. So we need agriculture. So we need to work with farmers I mean, we are all well aware that our agricultural systems in the last, well, since World War II in particular, have decimated our countryside. They are the biggest loss of biodiversity. People talk shit about um, hunting estates, and I'm not saying that they're all doing things above board. There's a lot of amazing people out there who really care. There's a small number of real bad apples. Clearly, that is the case. We are breaking the law. I mean, that's in the papers. <clears throat> and and we, you know, we need to be very clear about where we stand on that. Mm. But agriculture, which is feeding us, that has been responsible for the greatest biodiversity loss. Mm-hmm. But people don't really shit all over farmers all the time. I mean, I think that, and to be fair, I mean, I have a lot of farmer friends. Those farming systems have been perpetuated by the incentives from government. Mm-hmm because of the, the systems of subsidies that we've had in the place. Now, in, in Ireland, in particular, with the European, uh, uh, I can't remember what it was called now, one of the European payments for many years. CAP. Was, was it? Yeah, the CAP, exactly. So that was based on the head of cattle mm-hmm. and livestock. So yeah. what did that do? It encouraged people to have far more livestock on the land than the land could actually cope with. And I, I did a story recently 
in Northern Ireland, on Glenwarry Estate, where they're trying to reinstate that landscape to, to what it used to be uh, back in the early 1900s, when it was a thriving, a thriving ecosystem of, of grouse and, and hen harriers and um, uh, merlins and you name it, it, it had it there and the, the subspecies of mountain hare that are there in Northern Ireland. And it's been, de- it's like, it, it's horrible to see that landscape because it's, mm. I mean, they have more wildlife there now, but you look around and it's pretty dead, like compared to here in Scotland, it's pretty dead. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is as a result of really poor agricultural practices. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't blame the farmers. You've got to remember that the, you're farming yeah, yeah. on these partial um, uh, improved grazing la- uh, landscapes sort of between the, the rich arable lowlands and, and the highlands. There's not a lot of money in it. Yeah. So if you're a farmer, I mean, you, you want to be able to do your house up a bit. You want to be able to eventually p- replace your car that's falling apart. If you can take advantage of a system that's uh, not even taking advantage, use the system. Yeah, it's placed before you. You're going to because you're an idiot if you don't. <laughs> so we need to make sure that the systems that we put in place uh, for on a governmental level are incentivizing us to manage the landscape in a way that is good for wildlife, good for the environment, and uh, good for society as well. And yeah. we need to have far more social discussions about the direction of travel that we want for the, con- the respective countries that we live in. Yeah. Uh, you know, and what does, what does our countryside look like? What do we want, what do we want from it? Uh, mm-hmm. And then we need to also, and this, this ties into something that I was just reading re- recently and uh, something that I wrote about uh, and ties into the, the rewilding discussion is that underpinning all of this is that we need to understand the science and we need to understand the impacts of our actions because we've yeah. historically we've taken a lot of whether whether that be introducing species that don't belong in countries like mm-hmm. the cane toad in australia which they did for agricultural purposes which turned out to be um an oh, <laughs> yeah right um but I think we're much more cognizant of the fact now that we need to understand, well, the scientific community is certainly, that we need to understand what the implications of our actions going to be before we do anything. From a governmental level, we often act before we understand what the consequences are. And yeah. one of the basis of, of scientific principle is maintain the status quo of the current management or situation or whatever it is that you find yourself in until you understand how changing that system is going to affect the system. Yeah. Uh, and we don't do that very often. Like, here's a perfect example. Two months ago, um, a, a peer-reviewed scientific paper published in Nature on a series of plots, 40-year study, uh, here in Scotland, actually not very far from where I live, and they were looking at uh, this, uh, how cars were sequestered on plots that had been fenced and were allowed to, to grow in, um, I don't know if, the, I think they were planted actually, but in, planted in uh, native deciduous woodland. So a lot of birch. Mm-hmm. And then right beside it, there's pictures that you can see in the paper beside the fence plot. And then you have what we would recognize as heather moorland. Mm-hmm. Um, and when these plots were done, we weren't even, this was 40 years ago, some of these. So we weren't talking about, there were no um, government subsidies like there are today or targets for planting of, of native woodland. Mm-hmm. We were doing a lot of really terrible pine planting all over the country and destroying ecosystems, inclu- mm-hmm. including 
um, over in Ireland, uh, both mm-hmm. north and south. Yeah. Um, which, you know, we still, I mean, that's a big question is, should we be, have a, a, a forestry system that plants non, a non-native pine all oh, over the country? Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to this. The research that they were doing now has suggested that the um, carbon sequestered in the forestry block mm-hmm. is equal to or less than the block beside it, which didn't have any tree growth on it. Oh. Not what they were expecting. Mm-hmm. So just think for a moment, what is one of the reasons why we have this, and I really should know the number off the top of my, the percentage increase that the Scottish government wants um, in tree planting. And I'm not somebody who's against trees. I freaking love trees. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm just trying to understand the science and, and understand uh, the motivations behind doing things. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we have this is to meet our commitments to the Paris, agree- uh, Paris Agreement on climate change uh, because it's a, it's a carbon offset, it's a carbon sink, it's a way to take carbon out of the carbon cycle and lock it in the biomass of trees. But hang on a moment. Turns out it's not as effective. Well, as we- maybe it's not everything is not quite as it seems. So on, in this particular environment, in this upland area of, um, of, uh, of Heather Moorland, they were actually able to show that by planting trees in this very low energy system, because it's, it's cold and it's wet up there, that's how you end up with um, you know, peat growth, which is mm-hmm. very, very slow. So to re- we, won't, you know, we will never be able to replace that. It's not like growing trees. We can't replace that in our lifetimes. Yeah. The layering of peat, which is an amazing. It's one of the biggest carbon stores in the world mm-hmm. is, our, is our peatlands around the world. By planting trees in that particular soil structure, it actually activates um, the microbiology in that soil structure and starts to emit carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. into the atmosphere. And so you're either ending up with no net gain by planting or worse, you're ending up with less carbon sequestered than uh, the area right beside it that's just in heather. And then there's a whole other thing that you've got to consider here. California is burning. I have lots of friends there. It is mm-hmm. on fire right now. A lot of North America is, is burning. Australia last year was burning. We've had big fires here in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. So we not only have to consider what landscape do we want in terms of an ecosystem? How are those going to change? Because if we change something that has been Heather Moreland for uh, hundreds of years into yeah. trees, the same animals are not necessarily going to live there. That ecosystem is changing. We are, we are becoming the architects, as we always have done, but now we're making a conscious choice about it, understanding, hopefully, what the consequences are going to be. We are, we are reshaping that landscape into something that we want. So what is that shift going to entail, and what loses out? And is there somewhere else for the, what loses out? Is there somewhere for them to go? But more than that, if we're just worried about our commitments to climate change, well, hang on, are we actually doing something that is detrimental to our ability? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, we have to then manage, this goes back to this, we have to manage that landscape. So where does the greater risk lie? Yeah. Does the greater risk lie in a landscape that allows us to uh, routinely cold burn and manage and have uh, this, this ecosystem that we are, you know, has been well, fairly well established now and we understand of uh, rotational burning of heather where we can control fuel loads 
very effectively. We don't even have to pay for it as a taxpayer because a lot of the most of the, the burning that's done is done private estates. And it's funded by the fact that they also grouse shoot on there. That's why mm. they're able to rotationally burn. It reduces the fuel load, reduces the fire risk. Or do we landscape where we can't do that anymore because yeah. it is forested? And if it is forested, then, then we need to think about things like are happening in California where they actually burn the under canopy. Mm-hmm. It's a really, to reduce fuel load. So it's a really complicated situation here because the understanding the the future risk to these new landscapes is so important on on so many levels because that entire uh habitat that we create this these new forest ranges could disappear overnight and and when it burns burn the peat that it's still sitting on yes release of carbon into the atmosphere or do we take the, the the more cautious approach that having cool burns with small releases of carbon dioxide and the fact that it's protecting the peat layers underneath is a safer position to take it. Now, yeah. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's a combination of both. And I think it's, yeah. it's about understanding the science that we have, like the very latest science is within our grasp so that we can say, okay, we have these targets. What's more important actually than the targets for the number of trees, which I think is just an absurd thing. Oh, let's increase it by a certain percentage. And what does that even mean? <laughs> tree coverage, I mean, what, are you measuring the distance between trees? You know, what even does tree coverage mean? Yeah, or is yeah. what is more important that we're getting the right uh, improvements in habitat and biodiversity in the right places yeah. with a view that, we need to future-proof. We, the climate is changing, whether we like it or not. So considering our ability to manage and control fire has to be, absolutely yeah. has to be, within uh, every management strategy for anything that we do um, to change the landscape going forward. And on top of that, our, our, our ability to um, manage the wildlife within it. Yeah. Because... So much of the, the poor tree planting that was done you know, decades ago when those uh, big pine forests went up for the Forestry Commission, they were planted with zero consideration about how they would actually manage the deer within those forests. <laughs> and, and to some extent, the population or the explosion... No, hang on, let me, let me rephrase that because that's, that's exactly what the papers would write. The population increase that we, we saw in the last 50 years of, uh, of deer around the country. It's partly the government organizations planting all those trees are responsible for it because, <laughs> they, because they created Habitat. these vast areas of shelter. I mean, yeah. it's fairly poor habitat within it, like especially once it grows tall because it's very acidic and nothing lives there and there's not really yeah. anything to graze. But it provides perfect shelter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it helped perpetuate populations. So it's a really complicated story. I love it. And I we love- so much to consider. And we need to, be, we need to be happy to have discussions and not be angry with everyone all the time and be able to like talk these things through back and forward and try and understand, okay, let's try this here, but let's adapt. Mm. And we, we need to be able to adapt our thinking all the time. And this is something that we are very guilty of in the hunting community mm-hmm. is we, um, we feel like to change our opinions, um, to shift our stance on something is somehow a form of defeat. Yeah. Whereas really what we should do is be adaptable. 
-hmm. and we should allow um, our opinions and what we believe um, to be right and to be the right thing to do to shift and mold over time as we become bigger people, as we learn more about the planet around us. Mm-hmm. Like that's, uh, that's a true, that's a reflection of somebody who's uh, truly immersed in, in nature is the, is the ability to change your views and understanding based on your experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's hundred. I understand. agree hundred percent. And it's, it's awesome to have this, uh, uh, conversation and kind of like, you know, the complexity of all, all this is, is just something that keeps amazing me. Listen, Byron, uh, we're going to be wrapping this up. Last question um, for you that, I, that I'm really curious. What do you think, what is the future of hunting? Because obviously, um, you know, and, and partially to drawing from everything that we already said and that you already said, uh, hunting is, you know, under pressure and there's a lot of groups who don't like hunting want to ban it and so on and so forth together with uh biodiversity loss and 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 you know we have less animals and than than more um that kind of goes hand in hand because even if you're not gonna outright ban hunting if you don't have anything to hunt you're not gonna be hunting so i'm wondering how how do you see future of hunting? Is it something that, you know, inevitably will be gone together with the, all the animals and all the wildlife and with the wildlife and everything gone, hunters will be gone and in the past? Or you think that um, there is a future and, and how does that future look like? Is that future look like uh, that we kind of develop this new approach to nature and kind of... Um, learn to live alongside a little bit more than we do right now or maybe the future is like you will have you know like a fenced areas of wilderness where you can pretend you're in the wild and hunt and then outside of that you have a concrete and uh, you know city and buildings and like how how do you see the future of hunting? oh it's a really hard question um i think there are some things which are going to change very fundamentally um, I would be very surprised if within, by the time I'm on my deathbed, uh, hopefully as a very old man, but still capable to swing a shotgun, <laughs> um, that we will not be releasing non-natives to hunt them in this mm-hmm. country. So French partridges, pheasants. I... I struggle to see how we will still be doing that. I mean, to do to talk around that is an entire podcast to itself. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking at the direction of travel, and I'm looking at my own thought and thinking and understanding of the benefits that hunting brings. And and I'm very aware that there's a long list of benefits of uh, when densities are kept to, to reasonable levels. And you can go and read that on the Game of Wildlife Conservation Trust website. And they have actually have a new, um, a new. Uh, this is really good, actually. Your listeners should go and check this out. They have a new website called uh, What the Science Says. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can go and have a look at things which are come out in the media, like you know, we put down too many pheasants. So that was something that came out. Yeah. The biomass of pheasants and partridges was too high and it's, degrading our english landscape i think it was uh, and then they actually like break that down scientifically and show you what the science is so 
uh, go and read that to dig more into it. But in terms of to answer your question about where we're going, I would be surprised if if that still continues in you know at the, by the end of my life, maybe even sooner. Um, I think that the idea of, I mean, purely on the basis of, we shouldn't should we really be releasing non-natives into a country? Mm. Mm? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we don't like the idea of natives even being reintroduced. We just spent a while talking about wolves and lynx, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were actually here at one point. I mean, arguably less impact than a f- colorful pheasant, but still. Um, trophy hunting as a, as a term and everything that, that kind of encompasses in its meaning, like the ability to go to a place and hunt something and take the body parts back to your country of origin, um, assuming that you're hunting that like outside your um, your borders, uh, I honestly don't think that will that will continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I can see an end coming to that <clears throat> as we look at global wildlife trade and zoonotic diseases and uh, the, the the great risk that that entails. And that's not to suggest that, as far as I know, there has been no instance of disease being carried by the transport of um, trophy products for recreational hunting. I don't think that, I, yeah. as far as I but know... But like in the US, like, uh, for example, CWD, right? You cannot take uh, uh, certain parts of animals between the state lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can, exactly. And there's good reason for that. Um, and mm-hmm. so in, in that, I think as a hunting community, we need to adapt what our viewpoint is on this. And a really great example and a frustrating example for me and one that I was not very popular for pointing out at a, at a conference earlier in this year uh, is that, um, you know, a lot of the restrictions and bans around the world, like the one that we're talking of here in the UK right now, uh, which I guess they're too busy with coronavirus now to have moved any further forward, but banning the import of, um, <clears throat> of trophy animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like in America, the, the, the ba- they, a couple of years ago, they, they banned the import of lions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of that was off the back of this disgusting trade of canned lion hunting, yeah. of which there's been a recent expose that was partly on canned lion hunting because it shouldn't happen anymore anyway because the rules have changed there, but it was mainly to do with the, the lion bone trade, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, so when that was implemented in the States, the number of people, because it was mostly most of the, the people hunting lions in, in Africa, were from America. That was the the greatest proportion of the population came from there. Uh, It fell through the floor. So there are a number of concessions in Tanzania, for example, where that was the core of the money coming in. Yeah, okay, they hunted other stuff and, you know, safaris were long and there was other species involved. But what really kept those places going and funded them as um, conservation and hunting concessions uh, with all of the anti-poaching protection and local employment and, and uh, protein for local communities, blah, blah, blah. You know, we've uh, had that story before. was funded off the back of lion hunting. Lion hunting in a population that, you listen to uh, Dr. Amy Dickman, was sustainable when done right. When that restriction came in and we could no longer import the byproduct of those trophy hunts into America, people stopped flying. People stopped hunting. Now, what does that tell you about hunters? And this was the thing that I pointed out, was that, okay, it's not an ideal situation. Because in my mind, if we've gone through the checklist, is it uh, detrimental to the population that you're hunting? No. 
uh, is there money going into local communities? Are, are you protecting habitat or improving habitat? Is it good for others? If the, all of these things are ticked off and we decide that it's okay to do because they never banned the hunting in that country, they're yeah. only banning, they don't ban the, the export, well, the, the import of it, then it's wasteful to then have this stuff. And I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a wall over here in, in my office here and I have an impala, a red deer my dad shot, a, a roe deer, a goat, uh, and a couple of other things. I don't in any way class myself as trophy hunting because I, ha I happen to like skulls and I, I like the memories that these remind me of because as I said right at the start of this podcast, I've got a hedgehog that I definitely did not hunt. I found dead and I have a stoat and a rat and bird skulls that I've, that I've found because I'm intrigued by, I've always have been intrigued by skulls. So I, that's the reason that I keep them. The fact that all of these people now are not going and hunting tells you that actually that was the most important thing for them. So this yeah. discussion about, oh, well, you know, we hunt because it's the experience and we hunt because it puts money back into the communities and it protects these places and it funds anti-poaching. That might be legitimate, but for every single person who went back year after year to hunt lions and now couldn't bring their trophy back and didn't go, all of that was bullshit. Yeah. They wanted it because they wanted a lion, skull, pelt in their, um, you know, what, what a hell ever, you know, man cave in Texas. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really poor reflection on hunters. Mm -hmm. And I think that says a lot about the type of people who do that kind of hunting. Sadly, mm -hmm. not to say that's everyone. There's some, I know some friggin' amazing people who from uh, like superficially, you would think might be that kind of person. They're still going, they're still hunting, even though they yeah. can't bring stuff back because yeah. it truly is about all of these really important things. But there is a certain type of person who doesn't care about that, and it's all about ego for them. And unfortunately, these are the kind of characters that get uh, grasped upon by like the the, the media and the anti-hunting groups, mm -hmm. and they are with us, and we have this denial over it. Mm -hmm. So because of that, um, I think that oh well, to, to uh, round off saying about the um, trophy hunting, I don't think that we will have the same freedom to bring home, in inverted commas, our trophies from hunts. Mm -hmm. uh, because of these restrictions, they're going to be put in place. And I think that it's going to, uh, they're going to lean a lot on this idea of um, uh, viral spillovers into human populations. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to that is that we need to have a readjustment, a readjustment within our own psyches about, mm -hmm. and really ask ourselves why we're doing what we're doing. Because, when you're hunting on the other side of the planet, it is not about, I mean, I, I very often eat, do eat, not all because I'm, you know, an entire carcass, but I'm eating uh, some stuff that I've hunted there and it is all being consumed. It's all being eaten. There's a whole, you know, backstory of ways that this is sustainable and being used. And I think sustainable use of natural resources is actually a really important part of our ability to go forward into the future and have less uh, negative impacts on our planet. So, yeah. and I think hunting plays a part of that and it is going to, I hope that it is going to play a part of that, <clears throat> but we need to have a reevaluation and say, okay, that's fine. I'm still going to go and hunt elephants in Northern Botswana, even though I can't take the ivory home. I'm still going to go and hunt lions in Tanzania. If this is if something that you're inclined to do, even if I can't take it back. Yeah. Um, and I, like I say, I think it's, I think it is wasteful. I, I, I think that if, 
all the boxes have been ticked. Why shouldn't you be able to export that? Yeah. But if we just stop doing it, like a kid throwing a tantrum in the aisle at a supermarket because he hasn't got what he wanted, then you won't have choice anymore mm-hmm. because there will be no hunting left in these places because yeah, there'll yeah. be nothing left in these places yeah. because it's very well documented now, especially in very remote rural communities that don't have anything. Of course, they're going to use the resources around them and then add on top of that, the weight of pressure from places like China and other places in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. which are raping a continent like Africa right now, not only for its resource, well, for, for its, well, for all of its natural resources, you know, whether yeah. that be minerals or, or ivory or, or rhino horn. Mm-hmm. So you need people there who have a reason to protect it. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if that really answered your question. Trophy exports, I, I, we need to change our mindset. I don't think that'll exist. Not no, that's a, that's, a good, that's, a good, that's a good point about, uh, you know, because that was what I was thinking. Like, you know, if it's, if it's really about all the experience and, and everything, like then what that band, that band doesn't matter. Right. But it did. Uh, but, but, it, but, it, but it did. But it, I, was, I was more, you know, like in, in general, I like even, you know, if, if people are fishing for sharks of the beach now, you know, bystanders shouting at them and they're upset. Right. And then you go and shoot the deer on the field. And then there's a lady with the dog yeah, upset yeah. about it. And it's hard. Like I, and I think this somewhat goes to reflecting on why we're doing things. Like I, I actually interviewed somebody about sharks the other day and uh, Sarah Roberts, who's awesome. And uh, we talked a little bit about <clears throat> some work that a friend of hers was doing on shark research and working with shark fishermen. And actually there was an article in uh, New York Times, I think, about uh, fishing off the, the state of, uh, off the coast in the state of New York. And yeah. I was thinking about shark fishing in the same way that I was thinking about salmon fishing here. Mm-hmm. And we can't, in many rivers, you can't kill salmon anymore because of the declining populations. Yeah. And I always justify, I mean, I don't do it a lot anymore. I do a lot more trout fishing. I always justify uh, the ability for people, the freedom of people to go and buy a permit and go and fish for salmon and catch a salmon and put it under the stress of catching that fish and the risk that it's now not going to spawn and releasing it back into the river. Because we are, by doing that, you are funding the, um, like the fishery board of that area, which, which funds a biologist with doing the research to understand where the bottlenecks in river systems uh, so they can improve habitat and, and hopefully we have a more robust population. And that works really important. And the, the huge amount of investment goes into making those river systems better and, uh, and a better uh, habitat to make, to make sure we're putting as many salmon back to the sea to go and do their thing before they come back as we possibly can. Yeah. If people weren't fishing, where would that money come from? So I think that that is a fair trade. Yeah, some of those fish that are caught and released won't survive. But I think the fishermen and women are doing more good by their investment and interest and care in the river systems than the negative effect of the, of the percentage, whatever that might be, of fish that are going to die. Shark fishing, on the other hand, because I, I was forced to think about this the other day, would I do it? Mm-hmm. I don't think I would. Because I don't, unless it was somehow involved in also some, like a tagging system. Mm-hmm. 
I just uh, I just interviewed I just interviewed uh, uh, a gentleman who is a, a scientist in a, at a university in in um, uh, Northern Ireland, uh, and we were talking in length about the importance of anglers and the tagging programs for skates and sharks. And okay, yeah, that's that's the that's the argument. You know, like if you take a poor beagle shark, which is critically endangered around our waters. And so as each time you see angler, you know, with their grip and grin photo with the poor beagle shark, it's like, oh, leave them alone. And just like, oh, but they are, you know, be tagging them. And then just the whole discussion erupts, you know, how important is that tagging program? Is that data even used for anything and all that? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of like a common argument. You know? Yeah, and it's interesting. And, and I understand it when there's an attachment like that to it, but to haul in an animal for zero purpose, just to put it back in the water. Mm. If you're not, you're paying into a system that is uh, providing conservation for the species or it's part of a scientific tagging program. I think I have a problem with that. Mm. And that's a, a change in our mindset that we need to, because when I was younger, just the ability to go and catch stuff and fish for things. I didn't care what they were. I just, it was fun and awesome. And I loved mm -hmm. bringing fish in. I mean, more often than not, it's because I could also eat them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I also put a lot of fish back. And I don't know if I would big game fish now unless there was mm -hmm. some other purpose to yeah. it. Uh, yeah. Especially, I would big game fish if I could, if I understood that taking that fish out of the, the system wasn't going to detrimentally affect it and I could eat it. But I yeah. wouldn't go and game fish just to spend two hours hauling something in, which is then exhausted and possibly going to die to unhook it and chuck it back. Yeah. You know, I yeah. wouldn't, I would have done it when I was 19. Yeah. But I wouldn't do it now because I understand the world a little bit better. Yeah, that's, that's, that's that thing. Listen, Byron, thank you very much for that. It's, it's been an amazing conversation. I, I, uh, again, thanks for, thanks for doing that. And I, I, I think that uh, uh, my listeners learned, learned a lot. And uh, they should definitely check uh, into the Wilderness podcast. And uh, your, your website is uh, Pace Pace Brothers. the Pace Brothers. Uh, Pace so Brothers. so uh, go and check that out. It's, it's a, a loads of amazing podcasts and, and amazing conversations. So uh, once again, thanks for doing that. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on.